Please keep your hands inside the vehicle while the show is in operation. Hey everybody, this is Doug Birch and you're listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. So I have a little bit of a different show. I want to talk to you about this reality. Some of you have given a lot to a denomination, a religious organization, a group of people, and you feel betrayed. Or at least you feel like they don't trust you. Or they aren't allowing you to do much. Or you simply don't feel respected. I'm going to talk about how the Apostle Paul gives us an example of how to live our lives when we're not respected by institutions, leaders, the people we've served and tried to honor our entire life on today's Fairly Spiritual Show. This is Dr. Doug Bursch, and you are listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. So today's show is a little different. It's going to be focused on a certain group of people. You might fit into this. You might be able to put it into your own context. But I am going to specifically talk to pastors, ministry leaders, workers in the kingdom of God who've dedicated their lives to a denomination, to a church, to a religious structure, and you feel like you haven't been respected appreciated, uh, valued. In fact, if you get right down to it, you feel like you might have actually been treated poorly. You've invested a certain amount of your life into that institution, into that place, and uh, they have not reciprocated. Not like you lived your life for reciprocation, but you thought at some level, if I invest in this denomination, in this religious organization, uh, with these groups of people, there would eventually come a time where they would respect me. Uh, for some of you, that's an issue of you were young and you served people older than you, and you thought there'd come a time when those people would hand over the reins to you to trust you in leadership, and you found that that time never came, that when it was the time for you to be able to lead something or to do something, you were passed over, or people didn't hand over power, and you were stuck in this place where you felt like your work and your service was devalued. Now, this is kind of a hard thing to talk about because, again, uh, I don't think most people are doing stuff so they can get reciprocation. You weren't doing your work like, I'm only doing this because someday I'm going to get payback. Uh, however, there is this reality in any healthy family, in any healthy system or organization, where we invest in that organization, we invest in our elders, we invest in the people who've gone before, and there's an assumption that the healthy family will begin to value the voices, the opinions, the perspectives of those who are of the next generation. Sadly, that doesn't always occur. So I want to look at in the Apostle Paul's life where Paul gives us an example of how we're supposed to live regardless of whether our leadership is valued, respected, or even acknowledged. Now, when we look at the book of Acts, it's fascinating to me to see that there really is a divide under the surface. Well, maybe it's not that under the surface, but there is a divide in the early church that the book of Acts continually deals with. And that divide is what is happening in Jerusalem and what is happening in the, you know, the places outside Jerusalem in the rest of the known world as far as uh, the Acts narrative occurs. 
And one of the things you see is uh, there's a way that Paul is treated by the leaders in Jerusalem that you just can't look at without seeing there's a bit of distrust or even disrespect. Now, of course, there might be good reason for that distrust or disrespect, but let's just look at it a little bit. So we know that Paul is introduced to us in the book of Acts as the one who is persecuting the New Testament church. He is standing by as Stephen is being martyred, and he is glad to watch Stephen's martyrdom. He is the one that after Stephen is martyred, it causes everyone to flee from Jerusalem except for the disciples. There seems to be this idea that uh, now, because Stephen is martyred, that those in the deacon position, those who are not in the top echelon of the church leadership in Jerusalem, feel that their lives can be threatened. And they feel that way because it's true. Now, whether or not those in positions of leadership or authority want, want to go after the Jerusalem council or those who are in the highest leadership, the disciples within the New Testament church, they seem comfortable, and this is by Paul's leading, to be able to go after everyone else. As a result, the church scatters. The deacons that were put in places to serve uh, the church in the sense of the disciples were saying, we don't want to wait on tables. We need to minister the kingdom of God to pray and preach the word. They put these deacons into a position where they did the stuff that the disciples really didn't want to do. However, what we see is that... Um, soon as persecution comes in, um, the deacons are scattered, and Philip moves from being a deacon who waits on tables to being Philip the evangelist. And this probably happened with all of the deacons, that they now took on leadership roles in wherever they were scattered to. Now we see what happens in the book of Acts is that the apostle Paul is confronted on the road to Damascus by the presence of God, the spirit of Jesus, and he has this radical transformation experience. This radical transformation experience changes everything, changes the focus of his life, changes the focus of his ministry. Paul goes from being a persecutor of the way to proclaiming the way. But what we see is that the Jerusalem church does not trust Paul. And we know that because they don't right away say, hey, Paul, help us with this new crusade. In fact, they kind of just allow Paul and his new conversion experience just to kind of hang out and wait for someone to trust him. We don't see Paul actually enter into active ministry until uh, the Jerusalem council says to Barnabas, we want you, Barnabas, to go out and to minister to these Christians who are forming in Antioch and other areas. We want you to go out and to bring the message of Jerusalem, the message that we've learned to them, and also to make sure things are going okay. Barnabas goes and finds Paul. It's Barnabas who goes and gets Paul. They don't go get Paul, and I don't think they ever would have gotten Paul. They don't trust Paul. Paul is the one who persecuted their brothers and their sisters. But Barnabas goes and gets Paul and brings Paul with him on the first missionary journey. We also see that Barnabas is the one who introduces Paul to the Jerusalem church. They don't trust him, but they trust Barnabas. And because they trust Barnabas, they send them out. We also see that as Paul is ministering in these different regions, in Asia Minor, in Macedonia, there is a distrust from Jerusalem on what Paul is actually doing. And the distrust is this. They are concerned with the issue of how he's including the Gentiles. It seems like he is including the Gentiles in such a way that he is devaluing the rituals, the traditions of the Jewish people. And everywhere Paul goes, he is attacked in synagogues and in religious places that are controlled 
by by uh, the Jewish leaders, he is attacked as someone who is attacking the way of Judaism. Now, this is not just people who don't follow Christ. He is also at some level being attacked by people who do follow Christ, Jews who do follow Christ, but still believe to be a true Christian, you must be circumcised, you must follow all of the, the Jewish calendar traditions and rituals to be a true Jew or to be a true follower of Messiah. Paul does not put that upon the Gentiles. And he comes to the Jerusalem Council and he tells them about the amazing things that are happening. And the Jerusalem Council does acknowledge that the Gentiles shouldn't have to follow the same things or do the same rituals or follow the same procedures as Jewish believers are following. However, there still is a divide in the Jerusalem Council. And the reason we know this is after Paul finishes his third missionary journey, faces persecution everywhere he goes, he goes to Jerusalem. And there's this warning uh, before he goes from prophets throughout the region of Asia Minor and Macedonia and basically everywhere but Jerusalem. There is a warning that if he goes to Jerusalem, he is going to face persecution. He is going to be bound. He's going to be imprisoned. He's going to lose his freedom. Paul knows that as he heads to Jerusalem. So when he gets to Jerusalem, if you look in Acts 21, 17 through 30, we see this fascinating interaction between Paul and the leaders, um, the Christian leaders in Jerusalem. And at that time, James is the leader uh, who would be Jesus's brother. So I want to read you a little bit of this and see the tension that is existing between these two communities. And then we'll talk about how that helps us understand how we are to live our lives when there's tension between our leadership and the ministry we're doing, where we don't feel like the ministry we've done is being valued by those in positions of authority or in leadership. So let's look at Acts 21, 17 to 30. Uh, this is Luke writing about Paul and Luke and his travelers. He says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard about them, they began glorifying God. So it's clear. Let me be clear. I'm going to talk about a divide, but that divide doesn't mean that they didn't glorifying what God was doing with the Gentiles. But there's still another divide here, that although they welcome the inclusion of the Gentiles, although they haven't placed upon the Gentiles that they have to follow the same procedures and regulations and laws and rules of Jewish believers, there still seems to be a belief in Jerusalem and among the Jerusalem council that there is a hierarchy that the Jewish people still have kind of a greater righteousness, or there's a greater righteousness in truly following the law, that Christ might be our righteousness, but also we must uh, practice the temple practices, we must practice circumcision, we must do all the things that are required of the law, and that those who do the things that are required of the law at some level are just a little bit more important than others. In other words, they're just a little bit more clean. They're just a little bit more righteous. And also the concept that the Gentiles, although they are brought into the gospel through Christ, they're still kind of like second-class citizens. And the Jerusalem Council comes before Paul and they basically say, we need you to confirm that ideology. We need you to feed into how believers are feeling in Jerusalem, because believers in Jerusalem don't like Paul. They think Paul is standing against 
uh, their messianic understanding of the Christ. And we can see this by what they say here. So it says that uh, when they heard this news, uh, they glorified God. And then it says this, and they said to him, to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So he's saying, these are Jewish believers. These are people who believe in Messiah, believe in Christ. This is who we're talking about. We're not talking about non-believers. He says, they're among the Jews of those who believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, uh, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do as we tell you. We have four men who have a vow upon themselves. Take them along and purify yourself together with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And then everyone will know that there is nothing to what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also conform, keeping the law. But regarding the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter, having decided that they should abstain from the meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and what is strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took among, along the men, and the next day, after purifying himself together with them, he went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So this is what is happening. The disciples are saying this. They're saying believers, believers in Messiah, don't like you. And what we see in this as well is the disciples have not challenged this reality. They have not actively said, hey, Paul is completely with us. That's wrong. That's heresy. That's contrary to the gospel for you to speak ill of Paul. We should accept him. No, there's something going on in Jerusalem where they really haven't confronted this spirit. That there are believers, Jewish believers, who believe in Messiah, but they see Paul as a threat to Judaism and a threat to what it truly means to follow Messiah. For them to be a true follower, you must follow the law. You must follow the regulations. And these regulations and these laws at some level make you more righteous or more chosen or more just right in the eyes of God. So they tell Paul to go through this ritual. And the ritual that he's going through, it's a purification ritual for people who've taken uh, the, the Le Levite. Um, it's basically uh, this commitment to be a Levite. It's in Numbers. Uh, well, I can read you a little bit of Numbers 6, 1 through 12. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow. Excuse me, I said Levites. I'm sorry, I meant Nazarite. That's why it wasn't making sense to me. When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds, even the skin. I'm not going to read all that, but this a Nazarite vow is a, is a vow unto the Lord. I'm going to live fully for the Lord, so I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm going to abstain from certain things, also abstain from touching a dead body, or if I'm around someone when they die, I have to now go back and purify myself again. So these four people are people that need to purify themselves again because something has happened that has broken that Nazarite vow. Maybe they were around a dead body. And so what they're saying is, Paul, you need to take these four people who are 
basically failed at the Nazarite vow, who became unclean or clean or defiled in some way, and now they have to go do this ritual. And the ritual is for seven days, there's a purification process. At the end of those seven days, they shave their head, they give an offering, they once again commit to the Nazarite vow. And they're saying Paul must do this as well. So Paul must admit that he's been defiled, or something has happened to his Nazarite pledge. And so he is supposed to pay for his way and the four other ways, the four other men with their offerings, all of this to show that he values the law, he values the fact that he's done something to make himself unclean or to not follow the Nazarite pledge, and he's going to shave his head after seven days of purification so that he can enter into this Nazarite vow again. Paul is being asked to humble himself in a mighty way. Uh, the Jerusalem council is saying, here's the problem. Uh, they just don't know how much you love the law. And so you need to do these things. And if you do these things, they'll see you as a true believer in Messiah because you're truly following the Nazarite code. You're following the Old Testament. Now, I think Paul does this knowing that that's not what is going to happen. Paul has already been told that he's going to face persecution. Paul knows in every place he's gone, in every synagogue he's gone, that he has been rejected for including the Gentiles completely in God's plan of salvation. Paul knows he's been rejected because he truly believes that temple rituals do not make you righteous. He doesn't mind temple rituals. He, he thinks it's fine to be able to do anything in the temple that points to Jesus Christ as our Messiah, but he does not see the rituals as bringing him any sort of righteousness or special standing. All the rituals, every one of the feasts, every one of the, you know, the sacrifices they do, nothing makes you righteous. It only points to that our righteousness is in Christ Jesus. So Paul views these rituals very differently. And because the Gentiles are not introduced into that history, Paul sees no need for them to enter into these Jewish customs, uh, these Old Testament uh, admonitions, because they have no value in pointing to Christ for the Gentiles because they weren't a part of their culture. So Paul says, great, do these rituals. They have value. They have importance in pointing to Christ but they do not make you righteous. And because Paul believes they do not make you righteous, people hate him. Because he brings the Gentiles in and basically says, the Gentiles are just as righteous as Jews who believe. They have just as good of standing. They are just as pure. As the high priest is righteous in Christ, so is the Gentile righteous in Christ. And it has nothing to do with accomplishing any ritual. That makes people mad. So Paul goes through this ritual in order to appease the Jerusalem council, and this is what happens. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who instructs everyone everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. By the way, he has not. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they thought that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then the whole city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Paul hasn't preached anything. He hasn't said anything. He's serving the Jerusalem council. He's serving Jewish believers who believe he's not a good representation of the kingdom of God by going through this Nazarite pledge and paying for that for four other people. And yet he is still seized 
and he is maligned, and he's spoken of against, and they would have murdered him if the Romans hadn't come in and basically brought him to protection. Paul has not been valued by the Jerusalem council. And, and this is what I wanted to get at, and this is a subtext that we don't always look at, and I hope you're still with me on this. But if you look at the narration of Acts, it starts with Jerusalem, it starts with the disciples, uh, and then it leaves the disciples, and it follows the scattered church, the persecuted church. Once Paul and uh, martyr Stephen, and that happens in Jerusalem, uh, it leaves the people who stayed in Jerusalem behind, and it follows the people who had to flee Jerusalem. It leaves the Jerusalem council behind, and it only addresses the Jerusalem council in as much as the Jerusalem council is interacting with Paul and Barnabas and what's happening in the spread of the gospel in other regions. We get to the end of the book of Acts, and now we have Paul and his followers coming back to Jerusalem, and we see this divide. We see the fact that the Jerusalem council has not grown, that they are still limiting the gospel to be a, a, a subset of Judaism, or to only or primarily be about Judaism first and foremost. And so it hasn't spread to the Gentiles, and we know that to be the case, because who is attacking Paul when he comes into Jerusalem? Not just non-believing Jews, but Jews who believe in Christ are attacking him as well. What does that say? It says that the Jerusalem council has not felt that they could preach a gospel that would confront that heresy. They have not confronted that, or they don't really believe it. They don't believe it enough to face persecution themselves that they're allowing a Christian expression to occur in Jerusalem that is for Jews primarily and not for the Gentiles. So much so that the person who has been spreading the gospel the most outside of Jerusalem is being maligned by believers in Jerusalem. And instead of the Jerusalem council saying, you don't have to do anything, your work has value and worth, they are more afraid of the people around them. They tell Paul to go through this ritual that maybe if he goes through this ritual, he won't be rejected. Hear me clearly. This is a sign that Paul and what God is doing through Paul has not truly been respected by what's happening in Jerusalem and in the leadership of the church. And that's to me why the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem, but spreads out and starts telling the narrative of those who were scattered. Because the gospel stops at a point in Jerusalem. It becomes limited just to a certain group of people. But it expands through Paul and Barnabas and Philip, and those who are scattered. And so now we see at the end of Acts the problem with that, that when you compromise the gospel, when you make the gospel just about one group, uh, one sect, uh, one group of people above and over other people, that what happens is a great divide. The divide is not only in uh, between Jew and Gentile, between believers and non-believers, the divide is between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And then among believing Jews, there's a divide between those who believe that Judaism and Jewish culture is still more important, and those who believe nothing is important but Christ Jesus and his righteousness. And so we here we have the radical Paul, who values the temple rituals, who will do whatever he can to coexist with Jews, but he'll also do whatever he can to coexist with Gentiles. 
And the very fact that he's just ministering with Gentiles causes an affront to others because his ministry with Gentiles says this. He believes that the Gentile, who doesn't have to be circumcised, who doesn't have to follow the Jewish calendar, who doesn't have to go to the temple, who doesn't have to do any of the rituals, is just as righteous as the Jewish believer who does all those things. That is a radical notion. And those among the Jerusalem council struggled with that notion. And as a result, the people in Jerusalem were not pastored or discipled to welcome Paul. And instead, Paul is mightily persecuted. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I talked in the beginning that uh, some of you have been involved in institutions, in denominations, in religious structures, where you haven't been valued and respected. And I would say, follow the example of Paul. Paul does everything in his power to be at peace with those in positions of leadership and authority. He tries as best he knows how to get the approval of, to get the commission of uh, the Jerusalem Council. He tries with anything he's doing to try to get their approval and to get uh, their commendation. But also, Paul knows that they might not get it. In fact, I think Paul knows that they don't get it. They don't understand. So Paul keeps ministering the truth, the gospel, regardless of what is happening in the religious leadership. And I believe uh, we are entering an age where this is going to happen even more so, where you may be in a church structure, in a denominational structure, in a cultural structure where you have relationship with people, but as you welcome the grace of God, as you welcome the fullness of the gospel, as you stop limiting the gospel to certain people, uh, certain groups, certain nations, as you stop limiting it, that this group is a little bit more righteous than that group, and this way of doing things is a little bit more righteous than that way, when you move towards Christ Jesus being our only righteousness, a divide will increase between the gospel and those in leadership and the gospel where it is spread wherever you've gone, the gospel where it's spread to the far farthest outreaches of humanity. And that will happen you will face a time, unless those in leadership have been giving the full gospel and not limiting it to positions of power and authority or certain people or certain rituals, if they have not grown in the grace of God, you will find your place in a place of a divided community. And we see with Paul's example, Paul tries as best he knows how to do what appeases, what pleases, what serves those in positions of leadership. But ultimately, he keeps preaching the message of Jesus Christ, our righteousness. You know, if you follow through the rest of Paul's life, uh, the end of the story of Acts is so powerful because he basically wants to find a way to get to Rome. And so he gets to Rome, and he goes through all this persecution to get to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, uh, the Jewish believers there say, we haven't heard anything about you. There's been no letter sent to us. And what this says is that Paul could have just stopped preaching the message that caused such persecution. He could have said, oh, well, you don't know about me, then I'll just uh, not say anything that offends anyone and keeps me from being thrown in jail or martyred. Instead, Paul doesn't do that. Paul sees this group of people who've never heard of his reputation 
They haven't heard of the conflict that's existed in Jerusalem. They don't know of the conflict that exists between Christian-believing Gentiles and Christ-believing Jews. They know nothing. And Paul could have, at the end of his life, been very diplomatic and said, well, what can I do in order to get out of this persecution? Or what can I do to be uh, praised by the leadership in this community? What can I do so that I'll be welcomed in the synagogues as well as welcomed by the Gentiles? But Paul isn't strategic. Paul realizes that the only message he has to preach, the only message that's worthy, the only message that defends him and defines him is Jesus Christ, his righteousness, and his righteousness alone. No ritual, nothing makes him righteous. And so Paul is willing to preach a message that leads to his martyrdom. This is what I have to say to you. Regardless of whether you're being received or rejected by people in authority, regardless if you're being honored or dishonored by denominational leadership or church leadership or other Christians, God has entrusted you with the message of the gospel. Be humble. Be gentle. Serve whenever you can serve. Any ritual that points to Christ, it's okay to participate in those rituals. But in the end of the day, when it's all said and done, we must point to this, that Jesus Christ is our only righteousness. Nothing makes us righteous. Rituals don't make us righteous. Ethnicity doesn't make us righteous. Nationalism doesn't make us righteous. History doesn't make us righteous. Biology doesn't make us righteous. Standing in position in society doesn't make us righteous. Jesus Christ is our righteousness alone. Make room for the righteousness of God and preach a message that transcends culture, that transcends time, that transcends persecution. That's the message I wanted to bring you today. I hope you appreciate what I'm trying to share with you. Hey, I so much appreciate you listening to the show. I've got a new book coming out, Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. It comes out in April. Could you please pick up a copy? The more people who pre-order it, the more copies they're going to publish. So I'd love it if you could pick up this work because I really think it's going to change our dialogue through social media. All right, make room for the Lord. He knows you by name. I love you guys dearly. I'll see you later.